This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton, your host of News Talk Today all this week. We've got a great show over the next two hours. Hope you continue to join us throughout that time. And we're going to kick the show off today on a topic that so many folks talk about, whether you're a parent, sometimes a little less when you're a student, but certainly our employers throughout this nation. And that is a shortage of labor, most particularly a shortage of skilled trades. Earlier today, Minister of uh, Immigration and uh, Labor and the Ontario government, Monty McNaughton, along with Education Minister Stephen Lecce here in the province, outlined their plans for some trade uh, fairs related to skilled trades. Joining us on News Talk today is Minister McNaughton. Welcome to the show. Well, Deb, great to be on with you today. Yeah, you too. So this is a a bit of a hobby horse for you and Premier Doug Ford. Certainly was a topic prior to the June election and throughout that election. Tell us what's new today and what you and Minister Lecce announced specifically. Well, we're continuing our mission to get more young people uh, into the skilled trades. So today I announced that we're going to host five skilled trades career fairs uh, across the province uh, the aim is to have 25,000 uh, students and parents and educators uh, really explore the opportunities that are out there uh, in the skilled trades. And what is it that you see uh, throughout this that, that really provides the hook to get people interested in this, whether it's a parent to encourage their child, a guidance counselor to inter- uh, encourage their students, or students themselves? What is it that you try to sell? Well, look, these are great paying careers. Uh, Often they come with pensions and benefits. You can build uh, a family around a career uh, in the skilled trades. I mean, for far too long, uh, especially in the last 20 years in Ontario, we've told every young person that the only way to be successful in life uh, is by going to university, but that's simply uh, not the truth. Um, Careers in the skilled trades pay uh, six figures. And uh, as I said, they come with pensions and benefits or you can start your own business. And we, we, it's not just that we have a shortage given all of the uh, infrastructure that needs to be built, given all of the, the uh, holes that need to be filled, but we actually have an aging uh, workforce in this particular field that is going to make it all the worse. Absolutely. I mean, in the year 2025, one in five jobs will be uh, in the skilled trades here in Ontario. But today, one in three journey persons in the trades is over the age of 55. So there really is this uh, looming crisis. So really, um, everything that we're doing is about ending the stigma around the trades to tell parents and educators and young people that these are great, meaningful careers. We're also working to simplify the apprenticeship system and also to encourage employers to hire uh, more apprentices. One of the things I'm really proud of our government under the leadership of uh, Doug Ford and Minister of Education Stephen Lecce is this year we've introduced the skilled trades as early as grade one. So it's all hands on deck to really promote these amazing career opportunities. So I will say when you you mentioned the stigma, when I was growing up, uh, you went to university or if you didn't have the academic uh, skills, you, you defaulted to the trades. So how do we change that perspective? Well, certainly that perspective is unacceptable. I mean, these careers are very technical. Um, you know, you study a lot, you you work hard, uh, they're meaningful. I mean, I think of, you know, elevator mechanics, for example, in Ontario. I mean, the average wage is 108000 
uh, a year. If you're an electrician, you can make like $47 an hour. So it's really to talk about the, the opportunities. Um, you can travel Canada and work anywhere in many of these jobs. So it's just really changing that conversation and narrative and starting, you know, with the education system in, in grade one this year, it's really going to make a, a big difference. I know the other uh, thing I've heard you say and the Premier say is uh, to change up the the makeup of who is doing this. In other words, to encourage new Canadians and women in particular. What can you do about that particular piece? I mean, we're talking about changing, I think, a mindset, as we just discussed. That's That's heavy lifting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're making great progress on recruiting women into the trades, uh, people from underrepresented groups. One of my favorite stories, I remember meeting uh, a lady named Natisha. Um, She just became an iron worker and she got to explore the trades through one of our pre-apprenticeship programs. And I remember calling her uh, when she first became uh, a journey person and passed her uh, examination. I said to Natisha, like, what's the best thing about being in the trades? And she said, you know, before going into the trades, I was on social assistance. I had uh, two young daughters. And now for the first time in my life, my two daughters are looking up to me. I mean, that's why we're on this mission. It really is about changing lives and lifting people up and then also filling uh, labor shortages, which is a, a huge issue in Ontario. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the the uh, basket of skilled trades is fairly broad. Where do we see the, the greatest need in the next decade or so within the, that basket? Well, there's 144 different trades uh, in Ontario. We're, we're short across the board. Um, I would highlight, you know, construction for sure. I mean, we have an ambitious plan, about $180 billion over the next 10 years, hospitals and roads and, and bridges. Uh, but also, you know, we have to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. And if we're going to build uh, projects on time and on budget, we have to fill these labor shortages. So I have a text here from Toronto that says, what about someone like me, early 30s male with a college education looking to get into the trades? We need you. Uh, It's all hands on deck. Um, I know many people. I remember being down at Centennial College and uh, meeting a number of apprentices that are going through to be automotive technicians. Uh, Many of them were in their uh, late 20s. They went to university. Now they're exploring uh, careers uh, in the skilled trades. I would encourage anyone to visit uh, Skilled Trades Ontario and uh, begin your journey uh, into these amazing uh, careers. Are you finding acceptance and support in the guidance uh, departments throughout the, our uh, high schools? Well, again, I, I think that was one of the biggest challenges um, within the system was encouraging guidance counselors and educators to promote the careers in the skilled trades. It's part of that, you know, ending the stigma pillar that I talked about uh, earlier. But I've had the opportunity in the last few weeks to get out. Uh, meet with guidance counselors, and they really are promoting the careers. We need to ensure that um, all guidance counselors are doing that. And and the skilled trades career fairs are going to be a, a big game changer, I think, to to really help change that conversation. I'm speaking with Monty McNaughton, who's Ontario's Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills Development. I got the full title this time, Minister. Um, just tell us uh, in the last minute or so here exactly what these fairs are, where people can find them uh, and the dates for parents, educators and most importantly, students or uh, young adults looking to get into this field. 
I would encourage students and parents out there to visit uh, our website, ontario.ca forward slash trades. Uh, that'll talk about, you know, all of the different opportunities out there. Uh, we're running five skilled trades career fairs across the province starting next week in Mississauga. But then we'll be on the road to Sudbury, Thunder Bay, London and Ottawa. And then following the in-person career fairs, which more than 25,000 students will attend, we're going to also have a, a virtual skilled trades career fairs for all students who can't make the in-person career fairs. Monty McNaughton, Ontario's Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills, thanks for joining News Talk today. Thanks, Deb. You know, it's it's a it's a great topic. I said I showed my bias when I was going through uh, education, never thought about something like that, thought it was a default for folks who either didn't think they could succeed at university. Uh, and I think the joke uh, is on me, ultimately, in terms of, of uh, colleagues at the time, peers at the time who have created thriving businesses in, in the hometown that I grew up in, uh, in those trades. Certainly something, I have two girls that I would be completely uh, excited if either of them thought about doing that because it's it's uh, it, it's one of those things where you graduate and you can say this is what I'm going to do and then the sky's a limit for a lot of that. Coming up after uh, the break, we're going to talk about uh, the inquiry that's happening in Ottawa. One of the things I wanted to do this week while I'm hosting News Talk today is to get a daily update on what's gone on in the morning and the night, uh, the afternoon before uh, at this inquiry. I think it is an important inquiry, but I also think that there's a lot of noise around it, a lot of uh, public relations components, and a lot of things that at the end of the day won't really matter. But we'll be joined by a, a reporter after who's been paying attention. This is uh, News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Radio Network. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeart Radio Talk Network. I'm Deb Hutton, and that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about in the next uh, segment. It is what's happening today, and that's in Ottawa. Day, I think, are we day three, day four? I can't recall. Definitely day two this week of the inquiry into the uh, federal government's enactment of the Emergencies Act during the, uh, what I call, occupation in the city of Ottawa back in the winter. I did want every day this week, while I'm hosting News Talk today, to take a few minutes with one of the journalists who's sitting through this inquiry, who's uh, analyzing uh, those who are appearing and testifying before the inquiry and the information they're, they're uh, uncovering, we hope, uh, to give us some recommendations moving forward. In that spirit, we're joining us today is Mackenzie Gray, who's a journalist with CTV National News. Welcome to News Talk Today, Mackenzie. Hi, Deb. Thanks for having me. No problem. So today uh, was Mayor Jim Watson, who is not running for re-election, and I put that on the table just because I think I, I, I will probably ask you the question, Mackenzie, whether you think that tempered some of his comments one way or another. But he talked a little bit about uh, his concerns vis-a-vis -vis the Ottawa police and also chatted about a conversation he had with Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. Let's uh, hear what he had to say uh, about what he was trying to get across to the police uh, chief in Ottawa at the time. Well, I was interested in what the plan of action from the police uh, was going to be in order to clear out the downtown core because my sense was that this was not shrinking in size as people started to go back home. It was growing in size, so everyone could see that. 
He also uh, said, though, that no specific was, request was made of him, I'm sure, being cognizant of, and you'll hear him say, uh, the fact that politicians, of course, cannot direct the police. I, you know, stre- I stress to the police, as you know, we can't direct the police on what to do, but certainly in conversations I had with Chief Slowly, uh, he understood uh, very well the importance of uh, getting this situation resolved sooner than later because it would grow into a bigger issue. So Mackenzie Gray, CTV National News, what was your perspective on uh, what we heard from Mayor Jim Watson this morning at the inquiry? There's really two key things that I'm taking away from Jim Watson. You know, the overarching issues are very similar to what we've heard yesterday. There were city officials testifying. Uh, Jim Watson's chief of staff has testified. There hasn't been a real change in terms of, I think, how the city viewed this. They kind of felt left out to dry, uh, you know, by the province. One of the key things was, you know, he had a conversation with Doug Ford saying, you know, Doug, why are you not attending these meetings with the, that are supposed to be, you know, trilateral meetings between the federal government, the province, and the city? And he said, you know, recounting what uh, Jim Watson said, Doug Ford said, well, you know, it's uh, you know, just a bunch of people sitting around a room making decisions. And Jim Watson snapped back saying, well, that sounds a lot like a cabinet meeting. And according to Jim Watson's testimony, the premier was not very happy about that. And this kind of backs up what we'd heard previously, that uh, then Solicitor General Sylvia Jones at a provincial level uh, told city officials, uh, according to the testimony we heard yesterday, that, look, this is a police matter. We don't really want to get involved in this situation. And that was backed up by the prime minister who felt like this. There was a transcript of a call between Justin Trudeau and Jim Watson where Justin Trudeau says Doug Ford is basically hiding on convoy-related matters because of political responsibility that he has, kind of insinuating that there are some alliances or allegiance between some of the truckers and Mr. Ford at a provincial level. So those are the interesting things I think we're taking away from Jim Watson's testimony. But again, the narrative has already been set by the city. They're saying that they were kind of caught off guard, that they didn't know that the truckers were going to stay this long, despite the fact that the head of the hotel association wrote the Ottawa police and the mayor's office saying, hey, we've got contact from truckers coming in saying that they want to rent hotel rooms for 30 days. And despite the fact, Deb, that if you talk to any single one of the truckers, like many news organizations did, all the way coming from the West, coming to Ottawa, saying they were not going to leave until the mandates were lifted. So I'm still unsure as to how the mayor or any other city officials or the Ottawa police did not know that this was going to be longer than just a one-weekend protest. Well, and as much as this is fun and you and I can chat about it in terms of who said what to whom and, uh, you know, fights amongst the levels of government, what did Watson say he thought the premier or the province should do that wasn't happening? Like, is there actually a request that went unmet or what, what was sort of the takeaway from his commentary around the provincial, what he's obviously describing as, as inaction or indifference? At a bare minimum, he wanted them to come to meetings. And this wasn't the premier coming to meetings. It's Minister Sylvie John, Solicitor General, or, or having other people attend. You know, yesterday we heard testimony, and this was kind of echoed from Jim Watson today, that they felt that even at kind of the deputy minister level, the high-level civil servants, the, the perspective from Ottawa, the, the city of Ottawa, was that they felt like the civil servants didn't have the kind of go from the political masters to be able to lean into things. One of the key things that as the convoy went later on uh, that the city wanted to have the province bring in was having the province suspend the uh, insurance for a lot of the truckers who were here. And as we know, commercial insurance is expensive. And if these guys lose their insurance, 
that would be a major problem for them if they ever wanted to be a trucker again. And, you know, we had known that police had gone through the crowd taking uh, license plates, as well as a lot of these guys had their decals on saying, you know, Mackenzie Gray trucking. So they were easily identifiable. So they wanted to use that as kind of a threat against the truckers to get a lot of them to leave, knowing that their business could be impacted in the future. The province said, again, that they weren't willing to do that. This was a policing matter. And that at, the, at least in the middle portion of it, they didn't want to get involved politically. Does uh, um, We're talking with Mackenzie Gray, CTV National News, about what happened at the inquiry in Ottawa this morning into the use of the Emergencies Act. Is there any sense on Watson's part of, of ownership of this? I mean, you've outlined a little bit of the underestimation that seems quite uh, <laughs> unbelievable around the, the length and number of, of the, the protest days. Um, did he take any ownership, anything that he sort of did a mea culpa on whatsoever? Not, not particularly, and I, I haven't heard anything from any of the city officials, including his chief of staff, who testified yesterday. You know, basically they're saying, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. so if we knew that the protesters were going to be here for a long time, we would have did something different. But look, you know, you look at what happened in Ottawa, and, and you take a look at what happened in Toronto when the trucks showed up at Queen's Park. Well, the trucks were allowed to kind of come around, but in no fashion were they able to be parked for the same period of time, and they certainly weren't allowed to go park in front of Queen's Park for days on end. Everyone watched what happened in Ottawa, not just in Canada, but around the world when protests like this started popping up in Europe. And they said, we are not going to let this happen. And that is the key difference, that Ottawa was kind of used as a guinea pig. And and Watson brought this up in his testimony today, saying that we were the guinea pig and other people learned from us. But it's pretty clear learning uh, or knowing what we knew, even at the time, that this was going to be, or at least there was a reasonable potential that this was going to be the situation. And it's clear that the city and the police did not act on it adequately enough, which put them behind the eight ball where they had to make much more bigger and more difficult decisions later on that down the line to try and break up the protest. And you and I both alluded to it at the beginning of our chat. Um, just fill us in a little bit about what uh, Mayor Watson of Ottawa said about his conversation with the Prime Minister. Well, you know, he brought up this whole idea that, you know, Doug Ford was hiding. And the Prime Minister backed this up. He was frustrated that the Premier wasn't coming to the table. You know, he had had regular conversations uh, with both the prime minister and a number of other uh, ministers, including Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister, who was uh, intimately involved with this. He's in charge of the RCMP and the national security services as well, too. So judging by the transcripts, it looks like the federal government was involved uh, relatively soon. But we had heard this from ministers at the time, including Bill Blair, saying, look, you know, we need to go through the proper channels. The province does have some ability to be able to help the situation out. And we have to work with them as well as with the city before we implement these things. I think one of the broader arguments we're going to see here, Deb, is that, look, not only was the protest a problem and that there were tons of people who weren't willing to leave, but that the province was not willing to step up and be able to come to the table to deal with it. And as a federal government, we had the responsibility to deal with this. That's why we had to bring in the Emergency Act. I don't know for sure that's going to be the argument, but it certainly looks like that is one of the possible arguments that's going to be brought up. And it's important to note, too, Doug Ford, Sylvia Jones, two key players in this who've been referenced multiple times through a testimony over the last number of days, are not scheduled to testify, so the commission's not going to be able to hear from them about what their recollection of events was. Mackenzie Gray, at least uh, it sounds uh, in your mind that we're getting to what is, in my view, the only issue of this inquiry, which is, uh, was the was the use of the Act justified given the information Cabinet had at the time? So at least we end on that note, because I think that's really the crux of everything that's happening in Ottawa. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things. But I'll say for the people who live here and for, for the folks who watch this, 
the failures at the municipal level and with the police are, are of big importance for people here, too. Because without those failures, the idea that the Emergencies Act ever needed to come in, it would never have needed to have happened. The protests would have been dealt with in other ways. Those mistakes at the beginning led to a climate in where the Emergencies Act could have possibly even thought of being used and then inevitably being brought. Mackenzie, got to go on that note. Thanks so much for joining News Talk today. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Deb Hutton, uh, hosting all this week between noon and two. So thanks for joining me for at least part of your day. Yesterday, our uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, warned of a slowing economy in the months ahead. Now, that might not sound particularly new or newsworthy, but she did talk a little bit about the challenges that she's going to face. She was speaking with business leaders in Quebec, and she said that even with inflation beginning to ease off, such as it is, the road ahead will be difficult. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I'm not going to claim that we don't have some challenging months ahead. We do. But I am really confident in the resources the government is going to be able to bring to bear to support Canadians getting through it and in the fundamental strengths of the Canadian economy. She continued uh, to say this. This is a period of economic turbulence. Um, This is the final act of the COVID recession. We had the shutdowns. Then we had the reopening accompanied by high inflation. And now we're having higher interest rates designed to bring down that inflation. And all of that is hard and challenging. Joining us uh, to unpack a little bit of the uh, Minister of Finance's comments and to understand a little bit better what it means to you and me as we pay our bills and do our grocery shopping and pay for our gas, we're joined by Craig Wright, Chief Economist at the Royal Bank of Canada. Thanks for joining News Talk today, Craig. My pleasure, Deb. So what was your overall takeaway from what uh, the minister said? As I, as I said at the outset, this isn't particularly new, but it felt as though she ratcheted up her language a little bit. Yeah, I think it's consistent with what uh, we've been seeing for the last couple of months. Uh, we came out with a recession forecast for Canada back in July, and we were the first of the major forecasters to call for a recession. And since then, unfortunately, it's evolved to more of a consensus view, and, you know, that's what we're seeing around the globe. I mean, it's not just a Canada story. It's a U.S. story. It's a U.K. story, Eurozone story, and the global economy is facing some of the same pressures. So uh, not surprising, still disappointing, and very uh, factually correct that we are in for a bit of a a choppy period as we move forward. Although the minister herself, I don't believe, uttered the R word. No, the R word's loaded with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of baggage. But I mean, effectively, our forecast would be basically flat growth through the period of 2023, with a couple negative quarters and a couple small positives. But really, moving sideways through the year. So that would be meet the technical definition of a recession. But the, the bottom line is, it's it's going to feel a lot slower next year than it does this year for overall growth, businesses and consumers. So as an economist, uh, chief economist of Royal Bank in particular, 
you you base this on what what is actually a technical recession recession, which is you know certain number of is it two or three quarters in a row that that show uh, a decline, or do you believe it is more widespread and sort of for lay people like myself truly a recession? I mean, it's going to feel different by sector, by province, by individual, by business. But, you know, we're looking at an economy that stalls through 2023. And that's an environment where global growth is softening. We're seeing a global recession and with that softer trade flow. So our export sector be challenged. Investment's going to probably pull pull back a bit and be cautious, given all the uh, elevated uncertainty we're seeing around the globe and the consumer has been very strong for a couple of years, and it's going to slow down and stall through uh, through 2023. And the housing market's already begun turning the corner, and this is taking place where employment, the peak gains in employment are behind us, and we've had three of the last four months with decline. So modest unemployment rate rising as we go forward. But, you know, it's, it's different for everybody, every business, every province. But uh, generally, 2023 will be slower than 2022. I'm speaking with Craig Wright, who's the chief economist at the Royal Bank of Canada, about the comments made yesterday, and I think followed up a little bit this morning by our uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland. So the question then becomes, we're here, as you say, it's globally. So what are the levers that you see as effective in this particular situation? Because it is a little bit of a different situation than we've seen in the past when there's been a downturn. Yeah, I think uh, a few things. One, interest rates have moved up quite significantly. Um, the Bank of Canada started raising rates from 25 basis points in March, and uh, we're already up to 325, so 300 basis points. Uh, the quickest move higher in interest rates since the 80s, so a pretty sharp rise in rates, which is doing much of the heavy lifting. We're already seeing the cracks appearing in the housing market and the like. Um, we don't think they're quite done yet because inflation is still, unfortunately, disappointingly high. So a little more upward pressure on on interest rates as we move forward. And then uh, fiscal policy. So for the Minister of Finance, you know, growth has been strong this year. And if you add in the price of some of our key commodities, nominal growth, which drives government revenues, has been very strong. So they're going to see a pretty sizable improvement in their their fiscal performance. And that opens the door to providing some, some support for the economy, if indeed we're right that we dip into recession. So... I would think if they are inclined to provide some support, they don't want to do too much because it would mean interest rates would go even that, would have to go even that much higher. But they can focus some of their attention on those households that are particularly hard hit by rising food and energy costs, and that's lower income households in Canada where the you know the run out of paycheck before they run out of weeks. So some support there, but I'd like to see them do it with the existing government spending envelope writing to add, rather than adding to additional pressure in so the economy. I, I do want to come back to that point, the sort of the, the the public policies that the federal government could engage in. But I did I did want to get your take on you you referenced that you don't think that the Bank of Canada is done with its interest rates. What's your projection or what's your thought on what we will see to finish out your twenty twenty two and into twenty twenty three? Yeah, so they've, as I said, they've come very aggressively uh, on the interest rate front, getting to 325. Inflation's still a disappoint, disappointing high. We'll get an update on that, uh, that inflation story tomorrow, but we suspect they're not done yet. So we have overnight rates right now at 325. We think they'll move them up to 4% over the next two meetings, and that'll get us to 4 at the, the end of this year. And we think they'll hold there through through the course of next year. And so the Bank of Canada's, you know, a normal level of interest rates from the Bank of Canada's perspective, 2 and 3%. We're just over that. So they've only now started 
to tap the brakes on the economy. And we think uh, they got a little more to do, just give more inflation's going. And so then back on uh, the levers that, that our federal government in particular has in this, I, I mean, I'm, I come from the school of thought that you don't spend your way out of a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a time for austerity. But what do you see it would be effective levers uh, on the public policy front nationally? Yeah, as they suggested, you, you don't want to see massive government spending because that will mean even more significant interest rate increases from the Bank of Canada because massive government spending would fuel inflation. And we've seen a perfect example and not to do with what the UK has been doing over the last uh, last couple of weeks. So, so some tweaking, I think, um, that the government may well uh, see fit to do. And that's, I would think, some scope for addressing those that are hardest hit by hiding, rising food and energy costs. And that's disproportionately carried by lower-income households. So they could do some support for low-income households, but in the context of the existing government spend. So I'm not talking about new government spending overall. I'm talking about reallocating from some other areas that may not need the spending to those areas that might need it. Tax credits? Uh, potentially. Um, probably some scope for that. But again, it's it's in the environment of it. We still would like to see the deficit move lower. So we wouldn't want to see any sort of turn the corner on that improving trend that we've seen. And again, as I suggested, have policy, fiscal policy working against monetary policy, which would just mean higher rates and a sharper slowdown in the economy. Craig Wright, you're speaking my language on that. So thanks for joining uh, News Talk today. We appreciate your perspective on our finance minister's thoughts on are we into the R word or not? Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. So coming up after the break, one of my favorite topics, two kids in the school system here in Toronto. Uh, Those of you in Ontario, we are facing a potential strike by CUPE workers in our school system. We're going to be joined by Fred Hahn, who's the president of CUPE Ontario, to talk a little bit about ongoing negotiations and the fact that we are, as of today, potentially 17 days away from a strike in our schools. Yes, another disruption in education in the province of Ontario. So I'm going to ask some questions of Fred Hahn, get his perspective on behalf of his members, and maybe push back a little bit as a parent. Take the opportunity when I have this microphone to uh, express my complete displeasure at the notion that my children may not be in school in just a couple of short weeks. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton filling in this week as host of News Talk Today between noon and two o'clock. Welcome to the show. And I'm going to put my bias up front on our next guest. I am a mom with two girls in the public system, in particular the Catholic Board here in Toronto. And we are looking at the possibility of kids being out of the classroom again. Joining me to talk about that potential is Fred Hahn, who's president of CUPE Ontario. I know that's not a great way to welcome you, Fred, but I got to give you my bias up front. It's a perfect way to welcome me, Deb, and I completely <laughs> understand it. 
<laughs> all right. So I am going to give you a shot at telling us, first of all, I need you to define your workers for, for our listeners, because while we are talking education, we're not talking teachers with QP membership. So give us a sense of your members, how many we got, who they are, and what you're asking the government for in this round of bargaining. Certainly. Look, we represent 55,000 support workers in our schools, uh, 70% of whom are women. They do important jobs like the uh, school secretaries and admin staff in our schools, the custodial and maintenance workers that make sure our schools are clean and safe, the education assistants who work with children with special needs, the early childhood educators who work with their youngest learners, We have speech and language uh, uh, technicians. We have uh, uh, child and youth workers. We have library technicians. Everyone in a school that helps to provide so many of the important supports students need to succeed, who isn't a teacher or principal, uh, is uh, many of them. The vast majority, 55,000, are represented by QB. Um, And this round of bargaining is very much about the work that those members do and about the supports they provide that are important uh, to kids and to parents and to our communities. The average wage of our members is $39,000 a year. And in this round of bargaining, they're seeking a wage increase that helps them to keep pace with inflation. They're also seeking for investments to be put back into our schools to ensure that those services that kids and families and parents and our communities rely on are there for the future. That's what this round of bargaining is all about. So I'm going to push you back on that a little bit, Fred, and I'm going to say, uh, but it is specifically and and upfront a 33% increase on wages alone over three years, correct? Actually, what our members are asking for is a $3.25 an hour wage increase. Uh, they're asking for a flat rate wage increase to ensure that everyone is, uh, you know, raised at the same level so that higher wage workers aren't privileged over lower wage workers, which is what happens with a percentage wage increase. Uh, and that barely gets folks back. When you look at the percentage of our members' wages in terms of the overall budget, um, this would this wage increase, should it be achieved, would only put the funding back to where it was in 2015. You say that based on inflation. Uh, and based on actual percentage of the Ontario budget. So, in, you know, if, you know, uh, inflation, as we know, is raging uh, across our communities. But these workers in particular have suffered a real loss over the last 10 years. Uh, they're, they've already lost about 11% of their buying power because of legislative interference, both by this current provincial government, by, but by the previous government led by the Liberals. Uh, and, you know, it is becoming untenable and unaffordable for people to be able to continue to do these jobs that they love in our communities. So listen, I have a daughter, my oldest, who has some learning disabilities and special needs. I get it. I, I love all of the categories you talked about. We have used them in the school system. I, I believe we should pay our workers fairly, without a doubt. Here's my problem. increase, you can call it $3 an hour, it is a 33% increase over three years, 11.7% a year, versus what the government is offering, which is about 6% over three years total, 2% a year, or 1.25 for some of the higher paid workers, which is 4%. So I hear your point on on equity and fairness, but we are talking uh, at the top end, a 6% increase versus a 33% increase at the bargaining table. Well, what's on offer 
today from the provincial government uh, is about, you know, uh, it's not even a tank of gas a month, right? It, it doesn't actually uh, deal with the challenges that these workers and many others, but these workers in particular are facing. Uh, it's not uncommon. In fact, we've seen uh, this provincial government give $3 an hour wage increases to developmental service workers. That's what I did for a living before I became, uh, before I started to work full time for our union uh, with, from our members electing me. Uh, developmental services workers got a $3 an hour wage increase. We saw personal support workers in healthcare get it. This is not, uh, we saw nurses getting a flat rate wage increase over time. This is not uh, an unusual feature and an unusual ask. This is a necessary ask and an affordable one too, because again, should this be achieved, this would only put back the percentage our members' wages make up of the provincial budget back to what it was in 2015. So I'm going to move but, on to the to the uh, job action. Uh, I'm speaking with Fred Hahn, who's president of QP Ontario, when we are about 17 days out from a potential uh, work stoppage uh, or other such measures in our school system here in Ontario. You and I are not going to agree on the on the percentage increase, but I, I, I don't think I heard you disagree with the actual fact of 33% versus 6%, which I think is the wage piece that's on the table. But I do want to talk about the actual action and what your workers are proposing proposing what your union is, is proposing. I'll, I'll read from a memo that went out uh, by your union that said, it's, quote, it is important that as workers, we use this time to build power amongst ourselves, students, families, and our communities. I will say, as a family, as a parent in the system, I have zero tolerance or patience for any work action in my children's school after the last three years. What do you say to parents like me about that? Well, what I would say to parents uh, is increasingly there are parents who understand uh, that this is an essential action. Our folks aren't asking for 33%. They're asking for a flat rate wage increase, which is very similar to wage increases doled out by the provincial government to other sets of workers who are low paid. Uh, because it's important that we be able to attract and retain people to do these important jobs. And those folks are also parents. Our members are also parents who have kids in the schools. We know that uh, that uh, parents rely on these supports and services, and that you know increasingly uh, there are fewer and fewer education assistants to support kids with special needs. There are fewer admin staff in our schools to make sure that things are running. There are fewer custodians and maintenance staff to make sure that things are clean and safe and operating in a way that is importantly necessary for our schools, fewer library workers who are helping with literacy. This is an unacceptable future for all of us as well. No one wants a strike. No one wants to go on strike. What people are trying to do is make sure that this round of bargaining is very much about the future of the services that our members provide and that families rely on. It's why there are parents who are supportive here, even though uh, they understand as well that, you know, no one wants there to be a disruption. And one doesn't have to happen, by the way. Well, an option Fred, here I'm, I'm going to folks. take you on your word on that. I do have to fly. I'm sorry about that. I thank you for joining us. But I am got to tell you, 
I need my kids in school. That was Fred Hong, president of CUPE Ontario, talking about the pending strike. I think I heard we may well have one in just 17 days. Coming up after the break on News Talk Today, we're going to talk about dementia and what we need to do to make sure our seniors are well cared for. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. I am hosting News Talk Today all this week. And there's a a story, a segment coming up uh, in this particular uh, top of the hour that that really hits home to me. Uh, My dad has had dementia. He passed away just two weeks ago. And once my mom passed away a a year and a half ago, we were in a situation of needing 24 care for him. Uh, Like dementia, it isn't always a, a linear progression. And there are good days and bad days and really bad days and really good days. But we felt for his safety, he needed someone there 24-7, wanted him to stay in his own home, was physically able to stay in his own home, uh, worked very hard throughout his life and had saved money and hardly spent any of it. Uh, So we had the physical resources, but it was hard to find care. So a report out today by CanAge, which is Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization, says that governments are really ill-equipped to deal with what is going to be the a massive influx of dementia patients in the coming decades. I can tell you it's bad today, so to talk about how bad it really does look, I'm joined by Laura Tamblin-Watts, who's the founder and CEO of CanAge, who did the report. Laura, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you. So tell us what your report found uh, in terms of what we have as a potential crisis in care of our of our elderly who suffer from dementia. Well, it's no surprise to anybody that our population is rapidly aging and tied to that, our chances of getting dementia are really increased, particularly over the age of 80. So we wanted to see how we are doing in Canada about being dementia ready. It is one of the top chronic diseases. It is one of the seventh leading causes of death. And as you've said, affects just about everybody in this country. And the report was damning indeed. So, you know, I, I just shared my situation with my dad. As I said, we were we were fortunate to have been able to provide financially, which I know is not the case for so many people, but we couldn't find the resources today. How do we fix that? We hear a lot about dementia. We hear a lot about people's stories and and your story and my story and my family's dementia are really something that touches everyone. And we know that the resources aren't available now, but we've committed in 2019 to a national dementia strategy. And that means that we've said that we will actually do something about this And what it is, is a terminal disease. It's not just that people are living very challenging existence, but it is also one of the seventh most likely causes of death. And when we wanted to have a look at how each of the provinces and territories were doing to see if they have a dementia strategy, how the provinces were looking at funding 
for it, we found out that really very few of the provinces have a dementia strategy. And Ontario was one of those that does not have a dementia strategy. And without that strategy and tied funding, there's very little chance that people will get the help they need now, let alone the help that we're going to need in the very near future. Yeah, I mean, one of your key findings was that by 2050, one in six persons globally will be over the age of 65. Uh, but in Canada, we're already at one in six in most provinces. So we have... Heading a- towards and heading towards one in four very, very shortly. So these numbers are escalating sharply. So, but I come back to, so what do we do? Obviously, there's research uh, that is taking place and, and hope for future generations that we can actually curb the rise of dementia itself. But that's not going to happen in the near term. So we have all of these folks. What What is the answer? Because so many times I come back to the same thing, which is money. We decided to hold up Canada and each of the provinces and territories to a neutral report, which is the World Health Organization's report on dementia, which Canada signed on to. So these are promises that our governments have made to their citizens. And there are a number of key areas that we promised as part of that policy that we would do. So the first is, is there a dementia strategy in operation in the province or territory? And is there a Canadian one? Well, there's a Canadian one, but it really has very little movement on it, let alone money. And we found out that the provinces and territories are incredibly behind. Newfoundland and Labrador and the uh, Yukon and Northwest Territories have dementia strategies, but that is in fact it. Then we hold out whether or not there's public resources that are available for individuals and families. And that one tends to have some public resources and then everything else tends to be flat. So again, we looked at whether or not there are care pathways published for people to help them understand what the health navigation process is. And again, that is very um, nebulous in each of the areas. So that's someone in the family who's trying to figure out what do I do? How do I get there? And really what we see is that's not been provided. We also look at things like published resources, whether or not the public health website has information about whether or not there's information about how you can change behavioral risk factors, et cetera. And again, we fail on all counts and these are easy things to do. And why do you think this is the case, Laura? There's been very little in terms of visibility around dementia, despite the huge prevalence of it. And I think so many people just kind of throw their hands up and say, oh, yes, dementia, that's a real problem, and then move on. So what this report does is provide specific tactical things that we can do in country and each province and territory that can make the lives of people with dementia and their carers better, as well as hold government to the promises that they made. So these are very specific indicators, and it really shows us how far we have to go. Okay, share some of those with our listeners, Laura. So we want to see whether or not each of the regional health authorities in Ontario, we would call them LINs, and now Ontario Health Teams, have information available to the public on the incidence and prevalence. And the answer mostly is no. That doesn't take any effort. And whether or not there's data collected. And again, mostly the information is no. We wanted to see whether or not there were ministers who had dedicated portfolios with seniors or dementia in that. Of course, Ontario does have that, but our seniors ministry doesn't have much 
authority over the dementia profile. We also ask, are there mandate letters that the government has that are available and are they including dementia? And again, the answer is no. So what we can do is go through each one of these areas and check off that. It's not hard to publish resources for caregivers about dementia. Certainly our governments do that, but in Ontario, have they done it? No. So I'm finding this uh, interesting because I started out our conversation more on the tangible supports, and I don't mean websites or that sort of thing. I found myself as a dementia caregiver who knows public policy, who's able to navigate government, who had some time to be able to do it. uh, And I found myself not needing those types of resources, but actually needing care and in an urgent capacity. And the answer I got back from our local health network that you just spoke about was, if you can't find care, we don't have enough care to give you, you will have to admit your dad to hospital. Absolutely what people are getting as a resort. And now, of course, if you do need care, you've got to admit your dad to hospital. They have the right now under Bill 7 to place your dad as far as 70 kilometers away if you're in southern Ontario and 150 kilometers away if they don't have an immediate placement. So we don't have the solutions in place for dementia care. More than 75% of people with dementia live in the community and people need a bit of help and support and assistance. And until our province or our country takes this seriously, you know, the dollars will go somewhere else. And we know that the dollars need to go to dementia and they need to go to things like home care as a priority, which right now it isn't. Laura, we thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Laura Tamblin-Watts is the founder and CEO of CanAge, which is Canada's national seniors advocacy and organization. As I said, a topic near and dear to me, but it is so widespread. And and I'm getting to that age where so many of my friends have uh, parents who are beginning to show signs of dementia, and it is not a fun journey. Coming up after the break, we are going to spend some time talking about cyber security with an expert on the Liberals' legislation. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for joining me. I'm Deb Hutton, who's hosting a news talk today all of this week. In the next segment, we're going to talk about cybersecurity. And I will firmly admit this is not something that I know a tremendous amount above about. We had uh, our federal government obviously introduce a piece of legislation earlier this year. It's known as Bill C-26. And a new report is out basically saying that this report, uh, that this piece of legislation not only doesn't go far enough, but is actually a little bit dangerous in terms of what it does allow. Joining me is the author of that report, Christopher Parsons, a senior research associate at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. Christopher, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to read a quote that uh, came from uh, the report that you, you authored. It says, quote, if the government declines to meaningfully amend its legislation and make itself both more accountable and transparent to telecommunications providers and the public alike, it will have passed a bad law. Authoritarian governments would be able to point to a non-amended Bill C-26 in the course of justifying their own 
unaccountable, secretive, and repressive security legislation. So my gut reaction is that seems like a bit of an exaggeration. Tell me why I'm wrong. So I want to begin by saying I'm not suggesting the government of Canada is going to turn into an authoritarian authoritarian government. However, many of the laws that we see passed by authoritarian governments um, have characteristics that we see in the Canadian legislation, which include the government enabling itself to compel telecommunications providers to modify their practices uh, to address somewhat nebulous or vague, quote unquote, cybersecurity threats. So the worry that we have is that because the government of Canada, in the drafting of its legislation, has not built in appropriate accountability and transparency safeguards, as well as restrict some of the ways that this legislation could be used, an authoritarian government could pass law that looks on its face, similar to C-26, and say, we're just doing what the Canadians do. Now, of course, Russia or other countries are going to use the legislation in much more nefarious ways than the Canadian government would. But nonetheless, it would give those governments a veneer of legitimacy upon their illegitimate legislation. So if we if we assume this was not deliberate, then why did the government, they don't deliberately want those kinds of things you're talking about internationally, then why why did they produce this piece of legislation? So the government of Canada has been trying to figure out how to draft this legislation for quite some time. It, it didn't just sort of pop out of nowhere. I think what has happened is the government of Canada prioritizes cybersecurity. It recognizes it's important, and as do we all, right? So this leg- our report doesn't say that the, the bill should be banned or gotten rid of. But at the same time, cybersecurity has become an area of the federal government that is mostly addressed by our security intelligence community. And that community, understandably, prioritizes secrecy and prioritizes the ability of acting without others necessarily knowing. Now, sometimes that makes some sense. You know, if uh, the communication security establishment says, hey, there's a vulnerability in Rogers' networks, we probably don't want that as a press release. But at the same time, when the government compels Rogers, Teller, Bellas to do something, then there should still be safeguards put in place. This includes you know, not being able to issue regulations with permanent gags. This should be a more robust way of uh, judicially reviewing orders. And other measures that will ensure that Canadians, as well as those who are affected by these orders, understand what's going on, when it's happening, and to what effect. It may take you know, a few months or a year until we learn, but nonetheless, that should be disclosed. So accountability needs to be upped. What else do you see needs to be amended in Bill C-26? So one of the items that we note that is particularly uh, concerning is the, the government identifies three kinds of activities that it's concerned with, which is interference, manipulation, or disruption of telecommunication systems. But it doesn't ex- it doesn't limit what could be a problem in cybersecurity terms to just those. In fact, it uses the words including those three things. So one of the simple things is we say that the government should drop words like including or may and just make it clear when and how the legislation will apply. The reason for this is we believe that legislation should be legible to the public. You should be able to read it and know what's going to be uh, done with it. And as soon as you see words like including, maybe, possibility, it means that the government could use legislation in ways that we would never understand. And so those are functionally small changes in the text that would have substantive impact 
in reining in some of the powers of the legislation such that Canadians can be assured how it would actually be used. So layperson like me doesn't really think about these things, just wants, you know, reliable internet, (laughs) wants safe airports, things like that. What would the impact be on me without this legislation being amended? So there's a few concerns. So to begin with, there's sort of a democratic story. You know, if you can't understand the legislation that's being passed in your name as a citizen, then you get into some, some legitimacy issues. But putting those to the side, no matter how important they are, right. there's also the prospect that this legislation doesn't explain how personal information actually is uh, uh, addressed. So the government can go to telecommunications providers as an example and say, hey, we want certain kinds of information to develop our rules or orders. That could be personal information, but it might not be. And the government actually hasn't addressed at any point in this legislation how her charter rights uh, apply in the context of this legislation. And quite often, the government of Canada will issue what are called charter statements that sort of explain this, and the government's declined to do it. So there's a prospect that your personal information or, or mine or anyone else's could be provided to the government without warrant um, in the effort of the government to address some cybersecurity issue or another is that maybe this should still be possible, but it should be done only with judicial controls in place. So again, the goal of our suggestions, our suggested amendments, isn't to get rid of the legislation, but rather to rein it in such that it clearly accords with charter rights. So I understand that around private information. Is there anything else that directly impacts, you know, Jill or Joe public? There is. So the the government can order... Uh, telecommunications providers to do anything. And this is actually in the the legislation. This isn't me being hyperbolic. Um, It permits the minister to do anything that would facilitate uh, cybersecurity, up to and including cutting off certain services. Now, that could, in some limited situations, even include services that Canadians use. So uh, a telecommunications provider could be reliant on a vendor of some sort that the government of Canada thinks is problematic. And the government could say, you can't use that vendor. Well, if there's no replacement vendor, if there's no replacement equipment, then certain services might go away. And, you know, for those of us who are living, you know, like myself in downtown Toronto, maybe that's less of an issue. But certainly for individuals in more remote parts of the country, where they may be reliant on more specialized services or vendors, such as those from China, in order to actually receive telecommunications service, that could have a huge impact. That could mean that some individuals have a degraded uh, internet service or no service at all. But presumably, if the government were to take that action, it would be because they they believed there was a true threat of a foreign country into our system. You are correct. However, it may be the case that you know the government issues a certain demand, and the telecommunications provider says, we don't think that that's reasonable, um, or we don't think that's proportionate. So they could go through something called judicial review. Now, when they go through this review process, the telecommunications company itself may not receive or be presented with the evidence that's being used to justify the order. Now, that's problematic because there could be a case where the government is simply wrong. And we have seen this, including in telecommunications regulatory decisions of late, where the regulator just frankly got things wrong. And so the inability of the telecommunications providers to challenge orders effectively means that decisions might be made that the government does think are appropriate or necessary, but may in fact be incorrect. And so this is another one of those things that we're calling for. We need improved processes to ensure that when these orders are issued, they're necessary, reasonable, proportionate, and 
can be effectively challenged through a court-based process while preserving national security at the same time. Uh, quickly, uh, Christopher, I'm talking uh, to Christopher Parsons, who's a senior research associate at the University of Toronto Citizens Lab, and their criticisms of Bill C-26. Yes or no, are we likely to see amendments to the legislation? That is an excellent question. So we are hopeful <laughs> that because this report has been released before it's gone to committee, that the government will have an opportunity to look at it. And our, our hope is that this will go to what's called first reading in uh, the parliamentary committee, which will mean that the committee can have more substantive per- suggested amendments. So I think um, that is that not happens- a yes or no, but a maybe. A hopeful maybe. <laughs> it, it is a finger-crossed hopeful. Okay. All right. Thank you for joining News Talk today. Coming up after the break, we're going to speak with a two-time Olympian and sexual abuse survivor. I spoke with uh, Alison Forsyth when the Hockey Canada uh, scandal first broke, and we're going to follow up based on a recent suspension by a hockey player. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today. We're coming up into the last half hour of the show. And I just want to say in the last segment, I'm going to go back to a topic that we discussed earlier in the show, which is whether or not uh, we are likely to have a strike by CUPE workers in our school systems in Ontario. I got a number of texts, one which called me, I don't think I can say this on air, Tony, a a D-bag, I'll say that, for my view that parents are not uh, willing to put up with this strike. So I think we'll take some calls on that because the text board certainly was interesting uh, when I interviewed Fred Hahn, who's uh, Ontario president of CUPE. So get your phone lines uh, open for one we We'll take those calls. But right now, I actually want to go to a, a pretty serious topic and one that has me thinking about where we are in the world of uh, accusations around Hockey Canada and more broadly speaking in in the world of hockey. Joining me to have that conversation is Alison Forsyth, who's a two-time Olympian and herself a sexual abuse survivor. Welcome to the show, Alison. Thank you for having me. So, Alison, you and I had an opportunity to speak within, I think, days of the Hockey Canada uh, scandal breaking a number of months ago on on The Rush, which is the News Talk 1010 afternoon show. And you shared very eloquently your own personal story and, and the trauma of what you went through as, as an Olympian and as a sexual abuse survivor. And certainly, I think most of us have have very few exceptions been on board the changes that Hockey Canada has made and and hoping for a better culture and better management of some of the things that went on there. What I wanted to talk to you about today is finding the balance as we move forward. And I'll just I'll, I'll share with you and the listeners a little a little quick story, which is an an article out of TSN that talks about what happened to uh, Tampa Bay Lightning defenseman Ian Cole. October 7th, an anonymous source uh, was posted on social media that accused uh, Ian Cole of emotional and sexual abuse. It accused him specifically of pressuring uh, uh, her, the the poster who was anonymous, uh, multiple times to have sex when she was a minor. To their credit, October 9th, uh, the lightning suspended Cole. Six days later, they were unable to determine who this... uh, accuser was. Uh, The 
the social media accounts had been generated just within a few weeks of when the initial accusation was posted. And so they have, based on interviews, based on their efforts, concluded that there was no wrongdoing based on what they were able to find out and have reinstated Cole. So the question that's swirling in my mind, Allison, and and I I really would love your input on, and, and the reason we wanted to chat with you today is, are we going too far in our efforts to correct the historic wrongs that occurred in Hockey Canada? Are we now at the point we are where we are going to either err so solidly on the side of caution that we're actually ruining people's lives without proof? Hmm. That's a great question. And I'll start by sharing that um I'm I'm hope it's obvious I'm not a lawyer um, and yeah. I, I am going to speak from my own experience as a safe sport expert um, and a survivor of abuse. So in the field of safe sport where we do prosecute independently complaints that come through sporting organizations around any form of maltreatment, um, we have a standard of proof that is lower than the criminal code of Canada. However, um, there is due process that must be followed for obvious reasons with both a complainant in place and a respondent. Um, and so in that, you know, we obviously have to look at the evidence, witnesses, um, you know, and it's more of a civil matter. And if it's deemed to be criminal, it obviously is handed over to the right authorities. So first and foremost, even as, you know, a victim of sexual abuse, I believe in due process. Um, I believe in the rights of a complainant and a respondent. Um, I do understand, it, you know, and I would say that, you know, to not even, you know, in my opinion, we have done a major study with coaches across this country and over 65 percent said they right now are very fearful that they could have an allegation launched against them that could ruin their career and potentially their lives. So the fear of false complaints or frivolous complaints is real in the safe sport landscape. Um, and I think that we what needs to happen and it's it's you know, it's not easy for victims of abuse, um, including myself, um, is that if something has really occurred, you know, it's it's very challenging based on our own trauma and the journey that we're on in our own healing. But a formal complaint must be filed. And I do believe it is, you know, true in my belief that athletes are not targeted. I do not like that word. But I do believe based on their high profile nature that once the media or allegations of this type come out, because everything can come out these days online in a matter of seconds, um, it can be very damaging to their careers and their reputation. So all that to be said, I'm not here to say we've gone too far. Um, however, I do know that I deal a lot with potential complainants that don't feel comfortable filing a complaint. However, in order for due process to be followed, there must be, um, in most cases, a, a formal complaint filed by a victim um, or, which I think is interesting, um, an organization, if they have enough proof that something has occurred, they can actually step in as a complainant, even if the complainant says they don't want to. So that's a little bit more complex, but I think that's where Hockey Canada also went wrong. Whereas if they had enough proof and or enough evidence, um, they could have, you know, stepped in on behalf of the the young woman and and um, and ha- handled the complaint themselves. So that's a lot, but that's my take at this point. Yeah, I mean, I we we saw this with the Me Too movement, and and where organizations, companies, associations, you name it, uh, looked the other way for decades 
on things that should never have happened in in the workplace or or in 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 their organization. And then we sort of had the pendulum swing to such a point that just about everybody was under the microscope. And I think there's a balance between those two things. The problem here is, uh, as it was in Me Too as well, that it's it's a difficult thing to come forward for a woman in particular, but not always a woman, and tell their story. Absolutely. And that is the, I mean, when I was, you know, I, I, I was subpoenaed by the, by the crown to testify in our case, right? So if I had decided in my criminal case around sexual abuse, if I had decided I didn't want to go, I would have been in contempt of court. So once it's criminal and I would have gone, but it was just interesting that experience for me as a victim where I had no choice. And I will tell you firsthand that the, the re-traumatization of having to relive your experience over and over and over again is real. Um, that's why I'm a firm advocate for, you know, defendant, um, you know, for lawyer, legal support, victim advocacy, all of these things. So it is extremely challenging to come forward. Um, and also, once you do, I think we could all remember the Giam Gameshi case. And that was right before my case where I felt those women's there's their characters were defamed just because they were texting each other or what have you. There's also a lack of knowledge on how women respond to sexual abuse, um, how we don't by nature, you know, scream, jump and run out of the room. Um, so unfortunately, there's a lot of information still missing and research to be done on the response to sexual misconduct. Um, however, to try to land a point here, um, I think I agree with you that the pendulum needs to equal out somewhere in the middle um, because we can, you know, as a victim of abuse, I also have empathy for for someone who may be falsely accused. And any way that we get to that right place? Because at the end of the day, it boils down to judgment of people in positions of authority quite often. Absolutely. And that's why I will say two things. One is that if you are being victimized, um, the more documentation and proof you have um, is critical. Why? Because even if you don't want to come forward, if that organization is doing their due diligence and they know that they have a player on their team and they have proof that that player has done something horrific, whether that's discriminatory, physical abuse, domestic abuse, whatever that is, it often comes down to evidence, right? Even in civil matters. Um, then the organization can step in if they're doing their the, doing what is right. Now, that brings me to my second point, which is why organizations should not be working on their own complaints because of their natural bias. We have been talking, I have been talking about this for years because my abuse was directly covered up by my national sporting organization. Um, But now, thanks to Hockey Canada, everyone's starting to recognize, you know, the risky nature and the, you know, the bias that exists when an organization works on their own complaints. And that is why I am so sorry to have to cut it there, but thank you so much for joining News Talk today. You're welcome. Thank you. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, uh, host this week for News Talk Today. In this last segment, I'm actually going to revisit a conversation we had earlier in the show. I interviewed Fred Hahn, who is the Ontario president of of CUPE here in, in the province. His workers are about to get to the point where they can undergo job action, in fact, a strike in just 17 days. On November 3rd, they will be in that position. And I wanted to talk to to Fred because as a a parent with two kids in the system, after the pandemic, after in in our board's case, the Catholic board here in Toronto, after some uh, job action where my kids have not had a regular school year for at least, I think, three and a half years, I'm kind of at the point where I'm fed up. But I will tell you... When I interviewed Mr. Hahn, the text board lit up. And so I want to take some calls on this. 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010. I will give you a sample of those texts. One said, no one deserves a 33% increase, period. Doesn't matter who they are. And then the other one said, I'm a D-bag. I want these workers to look after my child but I refuse to have them make a living wage. So pretty broad spectrum of calls, uh, of texts. And so now I'd like to take your calls. 1-855-633-1010. What is at issue here is that CUPE workers who include uh, ECEs, early childhood educators, janitors, custodial staff, uh, administrative staff in our school systems, Uh, are asking for what amounts to a 33% increase, 11.7% on wages alone in each of the next three years. The government of Ontario has been very open in saying they are putting on the table a 2% increase a year for some of the lower paid workers, so a 6% increase, and 1.25 for uh, those who are at the higher end of the spectrum in this particular bargaining unit. So 3.75% 3.75% over three years, 6% over three years for some, uh, or 33%. Let's listen to what Fred had to say, give him an opportunity in this segment. Increasingly, there are parents who understand uh, that this is an essential action. Our folks aren't asking for 33%. They're asking for a flat rate wage increase, which is very similar to wage increases doled out by the provincial government to other sets of workers who are low paid. Uh, because... It's important that we be able to attract and retain people to do these important jobs. And those folks are also parents. Our members are also parents who have kids in the schools. We know that uh, that uh, parents rely on these supports and services and that, you know, increasingly... Uh, There are fewer and fewer education assistants to support kids with special needs. There are fewer admin staff in our schools to make sure that things are running. There are fewer custodians and maintenance staff to make sure that things are clean and safe and operating in a way that is importantly necessary for our schools. Fewer library workers who are helping with literacy. This is an unacceptable future for all of us as well. No one wants a strike. No one wants to go on strike. What people are trying to do is make sure that this round of bargaining is very much about the future of the services that our members provide and that families rely on. It's why there are parents who are supportive here, even though uh, they understand as well that, you know, no one wants there to be a disruption. And one doesn't have to happen, by the way. All right. I gave uh, Mr. Hahn an opportunity uh, for those who missed the interview earlier in the program to state his case. As a parent, I say, I don't care. 
my kids have suffered too much in terms of the pandemic and in, a, in my daughter's case of some job action on the part of the Catholic English teachers here in Toronto. Enough is enough. And with all due respect, 33% increase over three years is too much. But what say you? Let's go to Matt in Hamilton. Go ahead, Matt. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I, I think it's an absolute joke. Um, you know, it's the old uh, comparison of were nurses and doctors and frontline workers, like real frontline workers, were they able to just walk off the job when they weren't happy with the pandemic? And you can't use the excuse of there's just not enough of you anymore because there's not enough nurses. There haven't been enough nurses and doctors before the pandemic. These people are being greedy and they're using kids as leverage. It, it makes me sick. There should be a law. You know what? If you want to negotiate it, negotiate it in the summer. I'm with you, Matt. Thanks for the call. I'm going to move along here. Let's go to uh, Dina in Richmond Hill. Dina, what are your thoughts on this? My thoughts on this are that if this happens once again, I promise you I will be taking a placard and standing opposite the teachers who are going to be standing on strike or the whoever is going on strike, and I will and I will shout against them because I am done with this bullshit. Like. I'm sorry for my language, but I have two kids in high school and I am done with it. Like, we've had enough is enough. Who is going to be paying for the parents when they need to stay home from bloody school to keep their kids in, uh, at, at home? Who is going to pay for that? You think inflation only hits the teachers and nobody else? Like, this is absurd. Absolutely bloody absurd. And, and you know what? Make them an essential service. Make them an essential service so they have no recourse but to go and uh, negotiate like decent people do and and 33 percent who gets the 33 percent bloody raise who Uh, in this normal world who gets it dina i think you and i agree on this i will say i I didn't think of standing uh, across from uh the workers if they're on strike with a placard but i did think to myself i would be more than happy to organize and i know it'll never happen because it won't be allowed but i would organize a group of my fellow parents to actually answer the phones be at the desk help in the schools. May I'm not so good at cleaning the washrooms, but hey, if it means my kids can actually continue their education, I might go uh, for that. So let's go to John in Montreal. Montreal, you are not in Ontario where we're facing this, but what's your perspective on this? Hi, how are you today? Thank you for taking my call. By the way, uh, the name was Sam, not John. Oh, I'm sorry. Says John. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, during the pandemic, I actually took a substitution position uh, on the South Shore of Montreal, and I came across uh, situations where I was appalled at how um, little the teachers actually did. I had one student come to me and say to him, to me that within 10 minutes of the first class that I ever uh, taught with him, that I had learned more, that I taught him more than the teacher did in half the year. Um, so you know, a lot of the a lot of the teachers, uh, unfortunately, uh, I mean, I'm going to agree with it. They, they are overworked, but a lot of them don't even want to be there. They just want to collect a paycheck. Uh, teaching is no longer the profession that it used to be when uh, teachers actually came in and, and wanted to teach something. They open up the textbook, they put it in front of the students, and they expect the students to do the work themselves. I mean, these are high school, elementary school students. They're not university students where you give them a textbook and you expect them to learn. Okay, John, John, I'm going to cut you off there because we're actually talking about QP workers today. These, This is the first round of bargaining in the Ontario school system. These are your custodial staff, your admin staff, your ECEs. Very important to the school system, but asking for a 33% raise. Diane, let's go to you. What are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on this? Hi. Uh, well, 
in regards to anything in the educational system, I find this is a personal opinion. I find that today they are overworked and underpaid. Uh, they're always having to do more than what they're supposed to do. So teachers are acting as psychologists, mothers, daycare workers, and the students from children to teenagers are being dumped, in my opinion, into the school system. And parents, a lot of parents are saying, it's your responsibility, you, you take care of them, and they don't take accountability for what goes wrong. Diane, I'm going to cut you off there. We are out of time. I wish we had another segment to talk about this. Maybe we can bring it back later in the week. I'm Deb Hutton. I'll be back tomorrow. News Talk Today.